Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. All right, a topic of discussion here is often around dialogue versus debate. Or that's something that I think you've brought up from time to time. Mm. And I was uh, distracted on Twitter this morning. <laughs> Look, <laughs> it's a good distraction. <laughs> it, well, it, it it was somewhat interesting. It wasn't completely frivolous, but I stumbled on something I was following. I, I follow a lot of things about meetings and getting things done and personal mm. productivity. And I think this was related to dialogue versus debate versus in, ver, inside of a, a company environment or a team mm. environment. And okay. coming from open source software, there's this is also a very big kind of cultural thing where you typically debate, discuss things to death, and then... <laughs> try to come up with the best way and sometimes it has really good results sometimes you get stuck in the back and forth and sometimes the winning argument is just the person that writes the code and and gets it going right it's also a very prevalent theme at my company very focused on open source software and so there's a lot of debate and dialogue inside the company on a particular mailing list that everyone's on we discuss anything and everything there so when we talk about it, it's often in the context of Christian environments. Mm. I think church, I think it's come up recently in the apologetic stuff that you've been exploring. Mm-hmm. When I So anyway, I came across this thing, someone posted it, and it was the difference, it was examining the difference of dialogue versus debate. Hmm. So we'll link to it so anyone can read it and see where we're coming from on this. But I thought it was pretty interesting, especially when I read debate and I thought of some of the apologetics guys and their approaches. I was like, oh, this totally ties in. Mm-hmm. But then mm-hmm. I got to some of them and I was like, wait a minute. For most of these, I agree with all the ones where they de- they define dialogue. Like, for instance, the first one says, dialogue is collaborative. Two or more sides work together toward common understanding. Debate is oppositional. Two sides oppose each other and attempt to prove each other wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow, that sounds like so many of the religious debates of today. Yeah, I'm I'm in the dialogue category. And then I read all the way down. Like, but then as I got towards the bottom, mm-hmm. I was like, well, this is kind of interesting. So debate calls for investing wholeheartedly in one's beliefs. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of... I, Yeah. I mean, I think there's a place for suspending your beliefs, but... If you believe something, like, shouldn't you, like, be invested in it wholeheartedly? Yeah, good point. And there's, anyway, there were a few others like that that I thought were interesting. So, I don't know how much there's to throw around here, but I thought this was something interesting to consider. And I almost wondered, too, if it'd be useful in this discussion group thing you're doing here at your church. Yeah, that's a great idea, John. I mean, I like, yeah, I I like a number of these uh uh, comments, you know, that first one you read, debate, basically dialogue is collaborative, debate is oppositional. And yeah, the next one in dialogue, finding common ground is the goal versus in debate, winning is the goal. And it's, yeah, they are, they are very different. Although that one you, you read just recently, you just last there, uh, trying to find it. Where does it say? Suspending your 
It's down towards the bottom. Yeah. Dialogue calls for temporarily suspending one's beliefs, whereas debate calls for investing wholeheartedly in one's beliefs. Yeah, I guess, you know, this this is really interesting because I think this is a big point of contention that, that I would have. And, and I guess uh, what I would see as a big uh, an area of, of real weakness and a loss of credibility in terms of the church versus those outside of it, you know, in, in terms of how Christians interact with non-Christians. And then particularly, and maybe that's is, this is epitomized by some of the um, really heavy epistemological emphasis of a lot of the Christian apologeticists. So they're talking about what we know, what you can know, is what you claim to know valid. And I, I think it, it does go beyond that. It goes beyond what people know to who they are and how they live their lives. I, I don't think that apologetics necessarily has to be narrow to just dealing with knowledge and knowledge claims, but I think it's usually it's primarily there. And I think oftentimes this, this, it's this notion that we as Christians have got it right, right? I've already got all the information. I've got the best way to see it. So the question is, how am I going to help you understand that? You know, and, and in a certain way that sounds um, generous, and in another way, it sounds incredibly condescending. And I, I, I think that um, both are there. And I think that typically as an atheist or someone who's not a Christian hearing that, that just sounds completely condescending. And for Christians saying that or coming across that way in the best possible way is, go, is typically going to seem very generous. And I think it's a matter, particularly for Christians, to see the other person's point of view, that this is incredibly condescending. Well, there's one for that here. Dialogue involves a real concern for the other person and seeks to not alienate or offend. Hmm. Debate involves a countering of the other position without focusing on feelings or relationship and often belittles or deprecates the other person. Mm -hmm. I've definitely heard that. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I've definitely heard that in the apologetic stuff. I've heard it on both sides. I mean, mm -hmm. <laughs> think mm -hmm. like Richard Dawkins or something like he, He's not exactly kind to the other side. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's all the more why, in most cases, I think this notion of debate just doesn't work. You know, I, I think part of the issue with dialogue, though, and I would add something in here. I think one of the people that, that I really find to be helpful when I'm considering what dialogue means is a, um, a German philosopher by the name of Hans-Jörg Gadamer, or Gadamer. And Gadamer's idea is that having being involved in a dialogue is trying to bring out the true strength in the other person's perspective. So it's not just moving towards understanding, but it's moving towards furthering the other person's perspective and vice versa. But how could you do that if your whole goal is to prove that, prove that God exists? Like, why would you want to take, why would you want to find, what would you be looking for in the other person's position that God doesn't exist? You wouldn't. You, you couldn't possibly. It wouldn't possibly work. I mean, I, I think there's some basic, basic understandings that have to be there in order for um, some of this, uh, uh, in order to, uh, to overcome, I guess, some of these notions that kind of constrict us and keep Christians in a position where there's no way that they could possibly engage with non-Christians in that way, you know? And so I think, you know, one of the main ones 
is to understand people. So trying to understand who someone is and have them hopefully understand me. But, you know, this is, this is a reciprocal thing here. And, and I guess often I want to explore that. Okay. Well, no, the, well, finish your thought, but I want to dig into this understanding the other person thing. Well, yeah, I'm not, I guess I'd make a distinction between saying, hey, let's modify an apologetic, a typical apologetic approach. So a Christian who wants to talk to someone who's not a Christian and, and essentially uh, communicate something about the value or virtue of Christianity in a convincing way. That's, I think, that's how I would sort of summarize the goal of someone who has that type of a stance, a Christian who has that type of orientation. And so I'm not sure to what extent I'm suggesting that they enhance their modification, uh, their orientation, pardon me, or to what degree I'm saying, hey, that whole orientation, you're going to have to put that aside. Because trying to understand somebody, see, I would go down the road a little farther and say, you know, my goal is not simply to, to understand them. It's hopefully to be understood. But then in keeping with that, my intention is not first to teach them something, but to learn whatever I can from them. Mm, that's very subtle. You know, so I was, I still remember being in one of my courses and hearing about another course. These are big kind of uh, um, second, third year, whatever, graduate courses. And, um, you know, the prof in one of the courses that I was in saying, you know, I'm going to, we're going to work through this course and we're, we're going to examine whether Kant's version of morality is Christian. And in another, you know, whether this Hegelian notion, this notion of, of Hegel, it can be considered Christian. And these are important questions, I think, but they are always secondary. And they were placed, you know, this is the introduction to the course, they were placed as primary. These are the primary uh, considerations for this course. And I think that's completely wrong. Um, I want to learn whatever I can from Kant and from Hegel. And from any other thinker or person for that matter, you know, and some people will have more to offer me and some people will have less. But um, I think the only way for me to really be interested in understanding someone is if I believe, I honestly believe that I may learn something from them. No, and I like that. And that's where I kind of want to go. Well, I want to go a level deeper, which is also to assume that there's... Well, here's another way to explain it. So I was having a conversation with someone the other day and we were talking about uh, or we were talking about another theologian or someone that that doesn't believe in hell. Mm -hmm. And the idea that this other person was putting forth was, well, they must not be able to believe in hell because they uh, have these other, they have this other framework or this other way of looking at things that doesn't allow for a God that would have hell. So hmm. that's probably why they can't handle the idea of a hell. So they have to explain it a different way. Hmm. And that made me a little uncomfortable because I just thought, well, that's just saying that they weren't able to fully explore everything because they have this built-in bias. In other words, right. they must have kind of this built-in bias or this built-in inability to 
stomach certain things. So mm-hmm. that's why they came up with this alternative view that says mm-hmm. there's no hell. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, but you don't really know until you talk to the person or you really, really explore their position, really yeah. understand them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. Very true. Because, uh, yeah, that, that almost sounds from the the person who is making the offering the criticism you know that's one way to um i i often hear amongst evangelicals who are of certain persuasions and who have certain beliefs that you know these are the true beliefs and um you know there are other people and they're christians but um they can't handle these beliefs these beliefs are too much for them or they've been too uh enculturated or indoctrinated with other philosophies or perspectives and uh you know the implication is well well you know yeah, they've god's been tainted by the world yeah and, and the implication is kind of well hopefully god's working on these people and they'll come around <laughs> you know hopefully you'll come around to seeing things the right way and that's kind of as nice as it gets it, it gets a lot less nice you know it can be stated much more confrontationally and disparagingly but yeah, no, I, I, I think it's really worthwhile to kind of dig into that. And, 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 you know, part of, I think, what happens, too, is our whole, the whole notion of criteriology will change. So what are valid criteria in this particular instance, let's say, we, we might ask what are valid criteria for um, examining the, the, the concept of hell? Uh, you know, what, what, are, what, are, what are means of evidence? What are ways of, of engaging with that evidence or information? So someone might say, well, the biblical text is an important one. Okay. And they might say, my, my rationality is an important one. They might get a little hung up on the idea of imagination. They might not think that has anything to do it, do with it. They, many, many would certainly say, and, and this is a very classic sort of perspective, that your emotions have nothing to do with it. So your emotional responses, and particularly where that's seen as, you know, some sort of... Um, I don't know, soft-hearted or, um, uh, yeah, where, where you have a moral response on the basis of an emotional kind of interaction with this notion, that has nothing to do with it. And I would say, well, I think you might want to think that one again. You know, I think these are, these are kind of uh, classical notions of how we are to engage based on, you know, how people engaged in past. So is everything about the culture in the third and fourth century when in Augustine's time, is, is that an ideal culture from which to be able to engage with the, the biblical text? And we can look back and we can say, well, gee, look at some of those things that took place. Look at the asceticism, things like pole sitting and a whole bunch of terrible stuff. Some very strange notions about marriage and the family that existed back in the third and fourth century. And uh, very interesting, the metaphor of God and, and uh, you know, this kind of divine family of, you know, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, um, and then us being children of God, and yet somehow we can look at uh, cultures and moments in human history when notions of the family were really disparaged and just really under, under misunderstood and, or, or, or disparaged and epitomize them. Well, hmm. That seems kind of problematic to me. So, yeah, I mean, I think what we what counts as criteria and how we evaluate those criteria have to be, you know, called into question. And um, I think that allows us to this allows us to do that in a certain sense. So, take take me back though. I think I'm I've wandered a bit from your. Well, I went off on comment. the. I wanted to go deeper on yeah understanding other people, but I, I guess 
I, what I was important to me to say was that you almost have to understand them without having an agenda or or kind of some built-in presuppositions that, well, they must hold this view mm. because of this other thing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, maybe, but mm-hmm. maybe, like, oh, I'm thinking, oh, that book I talked about before, what was it called? Oh, The Bible Tells Me So by Peter Inns. Oh, so yes. I'm getting deeper and deeper into that book, and I don't know what to think. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. And so, no, this would be a classic. So here's a classic example. So he's talking about the Canaanites and how Israel was called to basically wipe out this people group. Mm-hmm. And today we would call that genocide. And so he's kind of raising the question of how can a loving God call for you know, such an immoral act. And I need to go reread this section because I'd like to discuss some of it here. But he essentially mm-hmm. says that basically the the Israelites misunderstood God. <laughs> huh. And then I'm reading some other sections where he's talking about the gospel writers and that, you know, really what's important here is that we get the overall message of Jesus. But, you know, the writers of the Gospels, he said, well, in suggests that none of them were eyewitnesses. I thought that at least a couple of them were. Mm-hmm. But anyway, Inns is like, well, none of them were eyewitnesses. And, you know, they probably added stuff here and there that didn't really happen because in that culture, in that time, it's all about telling stories. And if it makes, you know, it's an embellishment, no big deal. It's all about telling the story and conveying the overall meaning. Mm-hmm. So the more and more I'm reading, I'm just like, okay, this is getting uh, not really anything I've really explored before. And so mm-hmm. my first thought was like, well, you know, why is he doing this? Like, why, why can't he? But his whole point is he is studying the text. He's studying history. He's studying all these different things. And he's trying to put this together in a way that makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. And I think that's totally fair. Mm -hmm. But I think it would be very natural to say, oh, well, he he just can't accept certain ideas. So he has to come up with all these other ways of explaining it. And I don't really feel like he's doing that. Although I feel like some of his I've never heard these these positions before. So they're. Yeah, I'm not really sure what to do with them at all. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think what happens is that the, the the kind of type of response that you you're suggesting, you know, that people would say, or, or, or a particular Christian might say, well, well, he's doing this because he can't stomach this, or because he can't deal with that, or because he can't accept this. Um, I think when many of the understandings that appear to certain groups of Christians to be quote-unquote basic understandings. When those basic understandings, um, they're not even, it's not that they can't be discussed in the sense of being doubted and being reevaluated. They can't even often be, um, uh, they're just often presented as something you have to accept. Right? Yeah, like God's sovereignty. You just got to take that. That's a huge one, right? Yeah. And and so you know when we come across situations that where, you know, with with for example with with my uh, view that I think God is sovereign and yet God is also parent and these two two things 
work in a productive tension where one maybe you know has 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 a should be seen as having a predominant role over the other not necessarily a corrective role but almost like um, like the like a symphonic interplay right between different voices in a symphony or different parts in a in a choral presentation whereas in my life that's a little bit different i would see that those two notions i would kind of link sovereignty and truth parenthood and love i think truth and love are integral to who i am and what i need as a human being and yes, in my life, sometimes truth does hold a position above love in a way that offers a corrective and vice versa. You know, so I can think about situations where I might be tempted to um, <clears throat> just go with what I think is right. But there's very little compassion in that. Right? The, uh, on second or third review, it might occur to me or someone else's comment might bring it to my mind or my perception Man, I'm not really loving this person very much. I'm, what I may do, be doing might 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 have some technical, might be technically correct. There there might be some some real uh, truth in terms of you know this type of response could be merited. But part of what we understand in the in a type of Christian relationship and a Christian existence is that we don't receive what we might on in on other grounds merit. That there are a whole bunch of there's an interplay of different forces, different understandings, different conceptions that come to bear. And so we have God who, you know, in the Old Testament, you hear these things and you think, well, is this God uh, schizophrenic, right? Is this God multi-personality? Because there's, there's so much negative and so much positive. And you're, I think what you're seeing is this interplay between God as sovereign and saying, hey, you know what? We made a deal and this deal was much bigger than just you. This deal involved the whole planet, the whole world will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. But we can't do that now. Look at what you guys are doing. This is crazy. I'm calling you back. I'm giving you all these opportunities, right? And, you know, maybe I should just wipe you out. Maybe I should, you know, my, I, I, my, my, my anger will persist over generations. And yet we have these other kind of opposite uh, responses or, or interplays where God's uh, offering through through the, the prophets and whomever uh, potential for renewed relationship potential for forgiveness and mercy and um yeah I, I think that when you don't see but this too is not just saying that sovereignty is a problem but there's a problem in orientation that comes before whether it's sovereignty and parenthood whether it's confidence and humility, whether it's sin and the efficacious effects of the Holy Spirit, what we have is we have a very flat understanding of what it is to engage in the world as a human being and with the biblical text as a Christian. We do not see that tensions are crucially important and they're productive. But how do you know where those tensions are and where they're not? So, like, Enns kind of sets out at the beginning of the book to say that he is looking to to create a comprehensive kind of coherent you know beginning to end story of the bible and what's going on and and a story that does not contradict itself and that it all you know th that there's a way to kind of explain how this all kind of comes together so mm -hmm. you know and explaining like why the israelites are supposed to wipe out the canaanites and you know Enz's approach as well, they they misunderstood God. But 
you know, some people would say, well, but that's, you know, this is too, th- we are humans. This is too mysterious that, you know, God is God and, and we can't mm. figure all this stuff out. So, yeah, did God tell the Israelites to wipe out these people? Yeah. And does it make any sense to us today? No, not, re- no, it really doesn't. Um, but we can't understand this. It, we, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Well, I think so. And, you know, I would probably, I think what ENDS is trying to do on the one hand is um, valiant, but on the other hand, you know, I, on the whole question of the, 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 the Canaanite decimation, I have no idea who he's engaged with, you know, so there's a lo- there are a lot of people who've done a lot of work on that. You know, is it possible that, you know, a valid interpretation is that the Israelites misunderstood God? Well, Maybe. I mean, I haven't done enough personal work on that to know. And he's going in a completely different direction than I think more conservative Christians would be comfortable with, which is that you just can't read the Bible at face value and that everything in it is exactly the way God would have wanted it, or is, you know, quote, true. Yeah, but but yeah, and, and true in what sense, right? So is it, in other words, I think the Bible is... Um, sufficiently capable of carrying out its purpose, which is to bring people into right relationship with God. And you might say, well, hold on, this Canaanite decimation thing, that's totally throwing up a roadblock here for me, man. I'm not onto this. And, and again, you know, I would say, okay, there. I think there's some things happening in the Old Testament that just in the, the Hebrew Bible period, or Old Testamental period, as we mentioned it, call it in you know Christian terms, uh, that are highly problematic. I mean, that's a very uh, patriarchal society. And we see some big changes in some of that orientation. In the writings of Paul, you know, Galatians 3, Colossians 3, we see some, you know, there's no longer Greek or Jew, slave or free, male or female, but, uh, you know, Christ is all and is in all. And I'm paraphrasing there. I may have that slightly off, but that's essentially a good enough paraphrase to push back against some of these understandings that were taking place in the ancient Near East, which is the, the time frame for the, the writing and the, the, the kind of the, the historiography of the, the Old Testament. So I think we have to be pretty careful about, you know, thinking that, yes, this is how it should have been. This is how God wanted it. No, I think we're still not how God wants us to be. You know, I think there's been some progress over the last couple of millennia, you know, but I think we're still a long way from where we, we, we could be as human beings, you know, who are still not in the type of close proximity with God that would allow us to overcome some of the things about being human, the everyday things that make it tough, you know, the kind of vicissitudes we have, the weaknesses and inabilities and the lack of consistencies and all these other things and lack of you know, even just those things. So, yeah, but I don't, I don't know. Like, could you put ends and his work in a conversation with a conservative group? Probably not. <laughs> no, no. You know, I think, I, I don't, think that, yeah, yeah. And I don't even know what to do. Like I said, I, I thought, well, I'm about halfway through the book and I thought, I'll just go back to the beginning and I'll start like circling <laughs> and underlining and, Oh, you know, you. maybe we can throw some of this stuff around and I'm, yeah, I'm trying to keep an open mind, but it, I don't know. You know, there's always kind of that tipping point where it's just like, no, this is just too wacky. I can't get on board with this. I haven't quite reached that point yet, but I'm getting close. Yeah. 
Well, you know, you might what, what, another thing you might want to do, and I think this is a good thing for for people to do, to do generally. So you've got ends, and he's writing on the Old Testament. It sounds like he's writing on the Bible broadly, and he's yeah, taking, he's kind of marching. And again, I landed on this book. I'd heard about it before, but I landed on it because I was doing a search for Job at the library, and <laughs> there's one chapter on Job, and so that's anyway. Keep going. Yeah, well, I mean, it's just a question too of of getting as much of a picture as you can of whatever, you know, he may be talking about. It sounds like he's, it's like he's got a really small canvas, but he's painting like everything on it, you know, and that's incredibly hard. So, you know, on that one particular question of the Canaanite decimation, I would look at um, Christopher J. Wright and at least his book, uh, Old Testament Ethics and the People of God. He's written a number of them. I think he's uh, a, a very good source. Uh, I don't know ends uh, that well. I, I know some of his stuff. I've got a book of his on on uh, early parts of Genesis, and um, but I think Christopher J. Wright is far more reputable in that area. I think he's a bigger scholar with a bigger name, done more work. I don't know. I'd probably put those two together. Maybe throw in a couple more. You know, Gordon Venom has done a number of commentaries on Genesis, so that kind of. Uh, I guess that's that's not in Genesis though, is it? The Canaanite piece, but. Um, yeah, maybe something more along ethics. So more more along the lines of Christopher Wright. Um, but I guess, you know, coming back to some of the, the, the kind of your your original kind of focus on dialogue versus debate. Yeah, we should probably get back there before we end. <laughs> well, you know, I th- I think we've, we've got to just, as as Christians, there needs to be some, some changes, you know, some really big changes. So, you know, I want to understand who that person is and I'd like them to understand me. And then... If I'm not there to teach them, but if I'm looking to learn from them, all the while believing that I have some things that are valuable for other people, you know, I, I don't think that I've got nothing. Um, so there's this kind of valuing the other. And but the that's respect. the hard part. That's like, When you think you already have the answers, it's super hard to think that you can sit down with someone else and learn something from them. You know, you're completely right. I completely agree with you. I, I remember falling just... Because this was where I was at. I was really, really, really deeply uh, aware as a, this is back when I was, before I was a Christian, while I was agnostic for, for a number of years, you know, whether that was six, seven years. And I, I came across the works of Merrill Westfall and I came across his suspicion and faith, which is really kind of informed by Paul Ricoeur's work on what Ricoeur terms or who he terms the, the masters of suspicion, Freud and Marx and Nietzsche. But at the beginning of Westfall's book, Suspicion and Faith. He talks about reading Marx, Freud, and Nietzsche as Lenten penance. And he talks about, he says, the, you know, the reason that Christians should think about doing this is because the critiques of these people, these, these three people, and, and others like them, but them in particular, is so incredibly biblical. It's so reminiscent of the Old Testamental prophets and the message that they're bringing to the Israelites about how they are claiming to do this, but really doing that, right? How they are deceiving themselves into thinking that they are doing what God wants them to do. All the while, they're, they're, they're not just breaking the covenant, they're, they're completely jettisoning it. jettisoning it, they're abandoning it, they're just utterly forsaking it. So, yeah, I, I think that we've really got to think that people... Even 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 non-Christians like Freud and Marx and Nietzsche, and particularly sometimes, have things to teach me not just about what it is to be a human being, but what it is to be a Christian. 
And this was a lot of my focus in my graduate work. And so once we can believe that other people, that non-Christians have things to teach me, not just about, you know, oral hygiene or how to build a better fence, but about how to be a Christian, be a better Christian, then all of a sudden my conversations with these people take on a very different tenor. The intention becomes very different, right? Well, you know, I was just thinking, I just did this this week without even thinking about it. Mm-hmm. But I had a situation where a particular project was just kind of going around in circles. And I assumed that I had the clearest kind of most coherent view of what needed to happen. But there was one person who we were just, it just wasn't clicking. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, let's get on a video conference and let's just talk before the next meeting so that I'm really clear on, uh, you know, so that we're both clear on what needs to happen next. Right. But even in that conversation, I did learn some things from this other person. Hmm. Even I I didn't, (laughs) I did not go into the conversation with the right motives. It was my motives are really, this project is stuck. It needs to get moving again. Talking to this person one-on-one is probably my best chance at doing that. So let's just do this. But I think even in the process of that, yeah, I think my perspective is probably still the better one, but Mm -hmm. I did learn some little pieces in talking to this person that helped me have a better perspective on what needs to happen and mm-hmm. hopefully helped him too. Hmm. Yeah, it's amazing. You know, when you can go into it with that perspective, even if you think, yeah. That you've yeah, got so the I didn't go in necessarily to prove him wrong or prove him right, but it was definitely uh-huh. like, well, I've got this all squared away. So, you know, let's just talk and hopefully he'll be squared away too. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which well, you is kind of arrogant. So, yeah. But the interesting thing I'm hearing in what you said is I didn't hear a sense of responsibility. Like, I'm responsible for him getting it right. And I think that's another component that often plays in, you know, go and, you know, make disciples of all the nations. I am somehow responsible for that other person getting it. I've got it all. I know it. You are. And it's I'm a command in the Bible. And I think that is a completely <laughs> the wrong way. Because it's completely the wrong way to see it. I, I, I don't think that I, I am in any way responsible for the other person, how they think or how they live. And then even in terms of communicating what I believe and what I think of, you know, we, we talked about this uh, in the last or the second last podcast, uh, the idea that, um, uh, help me out, I'm gaffing on, on what we, the, the tie in there, but. The one, um, are you a Christian or? Yeah, I think I think that was the one. I'm I'm gaffing on it, but it may come back to me. But yeah, I, I I think once we lose that sense of responsibility for the other person, once it's no longer a sense of you know I've got to make this happen, you know, because I know what when I'm on a work project or if I've got a like a like a building project here at at my house and I've got to make it happen, man, I'm like out there till like whatever o'clock struggling to get this thing done because I'm like, okay, you know what? I've got no more time. I'm the only one here. If I don't get it done, it's not getting done. And then you end up, you know, being a, I'm a, I'm, I'm a pain in the butt. <laughs> you know, nobody wants to be around me. It's like, oh yeah, well, I guess, <laughs> guess Papa's out there. He's just kind of slaving away and, and uh, he's going to, he's going to be really mad. <laughs> uh, That's so not helpful. Right. And, I guess the other thing, I'm just going to throw a couple of things here in here at the end, and maybe we can pick up on them later. But I think in addition to wanting to understand the other person and be understood, wanting to learn from the other person, 
while recognizing that I have things that I believe are valuable that I can share. I start, when I'm engaging with somebody else, I start with, with common ground, which is our humanity. I don't start with the Bible, right? I recognize that for me, and that's just, that's one of the realities of, you know, I wasn't born a Christian. No, as far as I know, nobody was, right? We all started with our humanity. We all started as human beings and we became Christians. And that's easy to overlook. And that's easy to forget when you're born in a Christian culture, when you not only go to church, but every kind of, you, you, your, your plumber is a Christian, your dentist is a Christian. And I mean, I don't, I don't live in that reality, but I gather that some people do. So it can be very easy to overlook the fact that, you know what, you, you were not, you did not start out as a Christian. doesn't matter what kind of family or culture you're born into, that was not your place. So uh, I think that's, again, the way to, the way to kind of understand it. And even if, you know, becoming a Christian and, you know, engaging with the biblical text, there's a transformative impact that that has on my humanity. I'm still first a human being. And I'll throw two more things in there in terms of what it is to kind of engage with this idea of, of dialogue instead of debate. And maybe what I guess for me would represent a change or a modification probably a big modification of, of the, the, the Christian apologetic model. So how I would do it instead, right? And so the fourth thing for me is that being a Christian is about being hu- fully human. And even though this requires dependence and trust on God, it's not passive, you know? So this, we've talked about this before, this idea that rigor is important when it comes to Christianity, and I would say, you know, the Christianity is, on the one hand, it's like a combination of a research project that requires rigor and a dramatic production that brings joy and inspiration. And then after all of that, like taking all that together, what I want to do is I want to live out who I am and promote what I deeply believe about the world. And that's that kind of point of connection and communication that might have more to do with my beliefs. But I don't think you can, I don't think you can manage to respect the other person, respect yourself, respect what you believe and the, the density and richness of it enough. If you don't lay the ground for it first, if you don't set the stage, I just, just kind of jump it into something and, oh yeah, I, now, now I remember we were talking about in the other podcast about um, presenting something and it just, okay, it slipped my mind again. That's terrible. I had it there and it left me, but but I, I hope, hopefully those, you know, hopefully I don't know how much sense that makes to you or what you think about those, that approach. Which part of it? Yeah, no, I, I think it does. Well, understanding the other person, believing, like seeking to learn from them first before I go to teach them. Um, starting with my humanity and not the Bible. And then realizing that being a Christian and being fully human requires dependence on God, but it's not passive, you know, so this kind of idea of rigor and yet also inspiration and joy. And then finally living out uh, who I am and promoting what I deeply believe in the world. I think that's, um, those are the, the five things that seem to me to be characteristic of how it would, how I would, I, I don't even, I wouldn't even use this wording, but if you had to, I guess you'd say how I would engage with somebody who's not a Christian about 
what Christianity is about. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. Notes and links for this episode are at untanglingchristianity.com. We welcome your thoughts and comments both at the website and our private Facebook group. If you'd like to join the private Facebook group, let us know your email address in the sidebar of the website to receive notes and links for each episode, and we'll send you an invite to our private group. Or you can send your thoughts or requests to join the group by email. Send those emails to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.